Thank you so much. It's great to be back with you. I always enjoy my visits. Every time I come, the building seems to have changed a little more. And I do congratulate you on the, uh, all the commitment that that involves, uh, not just turning up, but I'm sure uh, dipping your hands into your pocket to express your love and commitment, and just to see this great church growing and developing and uh, impacting the city. Uh, it's a joy to be identified with you and to be your friend. So thanks for the warm welcome. I found uh, since I've been in the building, just conversation after conversation with different ones, and it's just a, a joy to be part of you uh, for these uh, few days. I, well, I say few days because I arrived yesterday and uh, enjoyed a super overnight stop with Steve and uh, praying with him early this morning, a huge blessing to me, and I trust we'll see the fruits of our prayers in our lives today. I've been asked to speak about grace, and uh, it's a phenomenal subject. It sounds so crazy and free. Uh, it's a vast subject, and I just want to commend to you a book called God's Lavish Grace, which is on the table, I think, round to the left as you leave. And I would really encourage you uh, to get it because we're going to open the thing up. I believe it laid the foundational issue, but there are all sorts of ramifications from grace. And I, I would just encourage you to get it. I've, I've had letters from people, even recently, saying it was life-changing to work my way through it. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was translated into Polish. I was asked to go to a number of cities to uh, kind of promote the book. And I remember going to one place where I was signing books at the end, and a, a guy came up to me, I didn't know him, had a huge smile on his face, and he was holding the Polish copy. Uh, and he said to me, you don't have to sign mine. He said, I bought it three weeks ago. It's written in my heart. And uh, it was just such a joy to see him uh, looking really, really radiant. So I know it's a life changer and I want to commend it to you. There are one or two other books out there, including one by my wife called His Strong Hand, which you may say, well, I'm not much of a reader. Well, it's, it's a kind of coffee table book where each chapter is only like two or three pages, but it's full of real insights. Uh, I, I write books. My wife is a writer, and she can really uh, kind of make things live. And ordinary situations where she's really met with Jesus and learned something, uh, chapter headings like a daughter's decision in praise of older women, sisters, wedding anniversaries, notes on worship, babies, daffodils and other smells, beautiful feet, the joy of the whole earth, rugby for grandmas. There's all sorts of fun in here. It's a really super book, and uh, I just commend it to you. As I say, each chapter just takes a few moments to read, but it is just full of insights and fun, and actually bring a few tears to your heart too. That It's a great, great book. So I commend those books and other titles on the table outside. I'm delighted to be invited to speak on the grace of God. For me, it was a life-changing uh, subject. I was a pastor. I'd been through Bible college. I'd been doing evangelistic work before then, uh, you know, into ministry for some years. And then I suddenly saw grace in a way I'd never, ever seen it before, and it completely changed my whole Christian experience. And I know that a real insight into grace can do that for us. So we're going to read briefly, first of all, from Romans in chapter 5. I'm going to read one verse from Romans 5. Uh, once Paul starts 
Romans, it's very difficult to interrupt him. He kind of just goes on and on and on. The word therefore keeps on appearing and it, kind of, it just holds all together. But we're just going to steal out one verse. Um, in Romans 5, he's comparing and contrasting the results of Adam's sin, rebellion, unbelief, and the results of Jesus' obedience, faith, and, and what those two people did for the human race. That when Adam rebelled, he wrecked the human race. When Jesus obeyed, did the will of his Father, he opened up a whole new race on planet Earth and was a huge and wonderful blessing to us. And Paul keeps on through this chapter comparing and contrasting. I'm just going to read one of those verses, all right? Romans 5 and verse 17. I'm reading from the NASB, so one or two words may differ if you use a different translation. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the joy of being in your presence. Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful words we've already heard, testimonies, scripture readings, prayers, worship. Thank you for a context where God matters, God counts in our lives through tough times and joyful times. Father, we're so grateful. And Father, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus, and we pray for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, Come, Holy Spirit, please lead us into truth. Rest upon us, let us hear your voice in our hearts. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the verse I read to you contains this phrase, that we reign in life through this abundance of grace. We reign in life. It's a, it's a vivid phrase. It kind of suggests being on top rather than being under, than being uh, through the pressures, in the difficulties. We reign in life. It's a vivid kind of phrase. And it's not the only one in the New Testament that has that feel to it. Elsewhere it says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're conquerors, but we're more than conquerors. Elsewhere it says he always leads us in his triumph. These are kind of extravagant statements of what it is like to be a Christian, that somehow you're above things, sometimes, somehow you're reigning, sometimes you're, you're, you're living a kind of life that was impossible before. And when you hear those phrases, something in your heart says, yes. And sometimes, sometimes in your heart you think, hmm, if only. I wish I was there. I know, it's, I know it's my inheritance, I know it's what Jesus died for, but it doesn't seem like that lately. And you can have kind of moments in your life, maybe you go to a conference, you put aside every other distraction, you focus on God, and somehow God draws near to you, and you, and you feel a fresh motivation. There are great days when you feel fresh motivation, and you think, yes, yes, Lord, I'm going to start living for you. It can come at the end of the year. You can come to the end of the year, uh, maybe somebody gives you a new diary, uh, and you look at the pages, and think, gosh, I haven't messed one up yet. And uh, you look at last year, you say, mm, sorry, Lord, that wasn't what I intended. That wasn't the best. I, I, I want to do better this year. 
I want to make a fresh start. And those are good moments. I want to make a fresh start. And the sad thing is that we, we come to that in our hearts. We feel this fresh sur- sort of surge. And sadly, at that very moment, instead of reading the small print, what it actually says, we think, now, how am I going to reign in life? And we say, well, I'm, I'm going to do something about this. I know as a Christian there are things I can do. Uh, and we maybe think, right, I'm going to set my alarm clock. I'm going to set it early. I'm going to get up much earlier. I'm going to, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. I'm going, to, I'm going to set how many pages? That means that's like seven pages a day. I'm going to read my Bible right through this year. I'm going to read it through. And I'm going to pray longer. And I'm going to start witnessing to people. And what we do is we kind of say, I'll set these rules to live by. If I can keep these rules, I'll reign in life. That's, that's the way we think. I think, I can't, I'm not doing well at the moment, so I'm going to set myself some rules to live by. And in the moment that we do that, tragically, we've just missed the point. We just, just lost it. And we start going down a corridor which tragically is going to turn around and bite us. And it's sad because Paul says this in Galatians, you who will be justified by law have fallen away from grace. You're trying to say, well, if I could keep these laws, I'll be okay. He said, if you, if you try and that, do that, you lost the way. You've missed the point. And, and you've, you've got off center. And Paul says that to the Galatians. Well, it's interesting. The whole letter to the Galatians is about this issue. I haven't got time to look at the whole letter. Uh, We're going to take a few verses in a moment in Romans 7. But the whole of Galatians is talking about this. Because, well, what happened in Galatia? Paul Paul went to a place called Galatia. He preached. And many people became Christian. And it says in Galatians 3, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Many healings and signs and wonders and miracles happened. A church came to birth out of his great apostolic ministry. And wow, here you have a great church. And he stays there and he teaches them for a season. And it's all shaped up and it's doing well. And he thinks, well, God bless you. And then he goes, he's an apostle. He goes to do it again in another town. And when he leaves Galatia, what happens is the Judaizers, as they're called in the Bible, they're, they're, they're Christians, but they're from a Jewish stock, and, and they've kind of got this interweaving of Judaism and Christianity, this kind of confusion. And they come in behind Paul, and there's this church. And they say, hey, this is great. You've received our Messiah. Our Bible tells us that uh, the Gentiles will receive our Messiah. Hey, welcome. We're glad you've become followers of our Messiah. Um, But, you know, if you really want to keep God happy, if you really want to be accepted, you know, really make sure all's well, there's some things you need to do. Um, You must keep the Sabbath. And you guys, you need to get circumcised. And and, uh, uh, you you shouldn't eat that kind of food. That food's not on, not on. And you must keep the festivals. And they start adding some things that they were not doing in order that everything's okay. And Paul is absolutely furious. And he writes what is his angriest letter in the Bible. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Bewitched is quite a big word when you think someone's just saying keep some laws. He says, you're getting distorted, you're getting bewitched, you're getting led astray. How can you improve upon what Jesus accomplished on the cross? How can you be safer? 
than what God has done in the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. How can you add to that? He's absolutely furious. Now, we may say, well, no one's come to me and said, you know, you need to be circumcised or anything like that. But what can happen is that when you get saved, you become a Christian. Maybe you became interested. You met someone. She's a Christian. And she's kind of together and kind of peaceful and happy. And I don't know, she's nice. And she says, oh, come to church. And you come to church. And you think they're all a bit like it. And... Uh, I better try and clear up my act. Better change my conversation, my language. I better change myself. And then you can't do it. You can't change yourself. Then one day you're in church and you hear the gospel. You hear, just as you are, you can come and be forgiven and be given new life. And you think, oh, wow, I never heard such a thing before. And you can maybe, you know, come forward at the meeting and say, yes, please, I receive salvation. I take this gift of God. And you're so pleased. And then someone comes up to you and says, you become a Christian. Yeah, yeah, I became a Christian. Uh, can I help you? Uh, yeah. Well, some things you have to do. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you must read your Bible every day. Oh, okay, got it. Uh, and um, you must say your prayers every day. Okay, got it, got it. And... Um, I shouldn't really do your hair like that. Oh, okay, okay. And, and you shouldn't really wear that sort of, okay, 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 I got it, got it. Okay, thank you. Oh, I feel wonderfully released today. Thank you so much. And you think, did I get set free or did I get loaded down? And we're not quite sure. How does this work? And when you get a whole church of people not quite sure how this works, we're really off-center and sometimes even preachers can be just trying to impose guilt. And we try, how, am I, how do I keep God happy? How do I make sure everything's all right? And Paul says this, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but you're under grace. You think, wait a minute, what's that mean? You're not under law. Or again, he says in Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. You think, what does that mean? Didn't Jesus say, the law will never pass away? And Paul says, Christ is the end of the law. What's going on? You're not under law. If I, if I was to ask for a show of hands, if I said here this morning, how many Christians here believe that Christians are not under the law, put up your hand, or how many here believe Christians are under the law? I think sometimes, if I said, let's do that, let's show a hand, I think many of us would be saying, oh, what are the elders doing? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> we're not sure. We feel a little vulnerable because Jesus said the law will never pass away. How can I say I'm not under law? This is a big issue. And if you just turn to Romans 7, if you've still got your Bible open, you'll find just in half a dozen verses, Paul gives a very explicit little instruction that I think is really helpful for us to see where we stand and the freedom that God has provided for us. Okay, so Romans 7, I'm just going to read the first half dozen verses. Don't you know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Okay, that sounds pretty final, actually. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. If her husband dies, she's free from the law concerning the husband. 
So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 6, but now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Okay, so Paul is giving us an image here of the law as being like a husband, and we, as it were, being married to the law. The law having authority over us, and it says in the opening verse, it has law as long as he lives. It's like, while this husband's alive, he's got authority over us, and he tells us what to do. And so the law is saying to us, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not do this, you should not do that, you should not do And he's got authority. And you can't argue with him, because he's right. You know, the law, the Bible says, is holy and pure and good. There's nothing wrong with the law, but it keeps on telling us what we're not allowed to do. And another thing we'll come back to later, but just to put this in your mind, the Bible says that the devil is the accuser of the brothers and sisters, and he accuses us day and night. It says that in the book of Revelation. The Satan, whose very name means accuser, that's what it means, he accuses us day and night. Now, I think that means that that's his chief weapon. It doesn't say he does anything else day and night. It's like this is his main weapon. He bombards you with accusation. You don't do that enough. What do you think you're doing? I saw that. I mean, he's just after you all the time. That's his way to try and get your head down. He accuses you day and night. That's what the Bible says. Now, just remember that. It's kind of behind what I'm saying. We'll come back to it later. So here we've got this husband, and he's saying to us, you should not do this, you should not do that. You can't argue with him because he's right. You think, well, no, he's, the law is holy. It's good. It's wonderful. But... All he makes you do is you feel that you're trapped under this authority that's got such a high standard to it. So you have this husband who's telling you what to do and what not to do. You can't argue with him because he's always right. He never lifts a finger to help you. Never comes to help. I don't want to see too many women saying, I think he's talking about you, dear. (laughs) He never lifts a finger to help. And, And Jesus says the law will never pass away. So you are married to a husband who's telling you all the time what you're not to do. He's absolutely right. He won't help you, and he's never going to (laughs) die. Hallelujah. eh? (laughs) What a state to get yourself into. Now, this is the amazing thing, that Paul brings us a great story of deliverance in this passage, because he says this, and notice how, be careful to notice what he says. It sounds like he's going to suggest the law needs to die. Because it says, has, has jurisdiction over us as long as he lives. Well, goodness, let him go, let him die. Jesus said he will never die. We're in trouble here. Verse 4, I read to you, Therefore, my brothers, you were made to die to the law 
through the body of Christ. So the Lord doesn't die, but somehow we who are in Christ, that's Paul's favorite phrase for a Christian, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, if anyone is in Christ, he says, in Christ you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? Well, Jesus had, let's put it this way, two relationships with the law. The first one was this, perfect obedience. Jesus obeyed the law to the letter. He was perfect. It it says of Jesus, he was innocent. That's the Bible's description of him, innocent and innocent. He said towards the end of his ministry, which of you convicts me of sin? No one could do it. He said, the devil's coming, he's got nothing on me. This is a perfect, innocent lamb, as it happens. A perfect, righteous man. That's one relationship with the Lord. Perfect obedience. Then, something happened. When we come up to the cross, the Bible says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But the first part, God made this innocent one to become sin for us. He became the personification of all guilt and shame and sin and everything that offends the holy God, all the, all the shame that's been put on you by what things that people have done to you. He became the personification of all that and the law judged him. And he hung on the cross, it says in Galatians, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a cross. He'd hung and suffered. He became your guilt and mine, and the law found him guilty, and he died. And Paul says this, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. The law is upheld. The law lives on, and Christ dies, and we died with him. We were in him. And our relationship with law is over. We have died to the law through the body of Christ. Jesus, the innocent one, became the guilty one. The law fouled him out and judged him. The law is vindicated. Jesus takes the guilt and the shame and dies to the law once for all, it's over. He's done it. He's paid the price. That's the end of it. He died to the law once for all. We also were in him when he died. Hallelujah. And so it says in verse 6, Now you've been released from the law, having died to that by which you were bound. So you serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. You, were, you have been released. Discharged is another way of translating it. The great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses this illustration. He said it's like a soldier who's done maybe two or three years of national service. He's, he's, he's signed on. He's done his two or three years. He's been ordered around by the sergeant major. You know, left, right, do this, do that. You just do obey, literally. And then there comes that moment when you are discharged. It's over. You've no, you're not in anymore. And uh, he says, imagine, imagine the soldier, and he's walking across the parade ground. He's got no tie on. He's got his jacket over his shoulder. And the, suddenly, the sergeant comes around the corner. He says, here, soldier. He says, Sarge. He says, hey, wait a minute. I'm out of here. Bye, Sarge. You know, it doesn't matter how much he screams at you. He can't touch you. 
you're not under his authority anymore. You're discharged. It's all over. And that's what it says. You've been discharged, released from the law, having died to that by which you were bound. Hallelujah. So our relationship, dear friends, with the law is over. See, some people would say this. We know the law can't save. Only Jesus can save. But you need to go back to the law to be sanctified. That's what a lot of people would say. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible nowhere says it. Nowhere says it. It says we're discharged from it. It doesn't say, no, the law will sanctify you. We'll show that in a minute. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach Jesus saves, but the law the law will sanctify you. It doesn't say that at all. It's all over. My relationship with the law is over. I've died to it. It's irrelevant to me. It's irrelevant to me. And what does it say here? It says, verse 4, come back to, Thy brothers, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be what? Joined to another. To him who was raised from the dead. All right, so we've died to this husband... Not in order that we can, wow, that's it then, I'm on my own now. No, no, you died to that husband so that you may be joined to another. We're still talking marriage language here. To him who was raised from the dead. Who's that? Well, Jesus. Now we're joined to him. We've become part of the bride of Christ. We're no longer married to the law. We're now married to Jesus who's raised from the dead. In order, it says, that you might bear fruit. Now that's a new idea, bearing fruit. Because the law, there's no reference to the, the law making me fruitful. The law made me aware of my guilt. The law showed me what a sinner I was. That's what the Bible says it's meant to do. The law, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what it says in the Bible. So the law showed me I'm a guilty person, I'm a guilty person. But he didn't impart anything to me to make me fruitful he couldn't do it in fact the bible says the law is our school teacher to bring us to christ it doesn't even mean teacher actually the word is like a certain there was a greek slave whose job was to collect the children and bring them to the school that's the actual word that's used your child collector it's a bit like busing in the Americas. You go and pick up kids and take them to school. That's, the law brings us to Christ. Having done that, it's finished his job. Because Christ is the answer, the law isn't. The law, as our previous husband, wasn't able to make us fruitful. In fact, Paul says in Galatians, very interesting thing he says, in Galatians in chapter 3 and verse 21, if a law had been given that was able to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on law. So you want to live the righteous life? If if a law had been given that can impart life, yeah, then righteousness will come by the law. It's like, okay, if the law can impart life, let's get into all the schools and let's go and tell them, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not. You shall not. If the law could impart life, let's tell them the law. That will change the nation. No, 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 don't. It doesn't. Why? Because the law doesn't impart any life. It just shows you you're a sinner. It doesn't change you. 
the law, if a law had been given that could impart life, can't impart life. He's an impotent husband. He doesn't impart life to me. So I've died to that husband that I might be joined to him who was raised from the dead in order that what? I might bear fruit. Ah, I've found a potent husband. This new husband's not impotent. This new husband says, abide in me and I in you, you'll be very fruitful. I'll make you fruitful. I'll change you from the inside. This new husband says things like this, my, my peace I give you. My joy, I give you. My love, I pour it out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. This is a different kind of husband. This is a husband who imparts life, who changes me from the inside, who makes me like him. How do you bear fruit? Get very close to your husband. Experience his love. Enjoy his impregnation of your soul. You'll get changed from the inside. It's no good going back. I don't need to go back to law. Law can't do it. It's obsolete, it says in Hebrews. It doesn't impart any life. So that teaching that says, oh, you need some law, you don't. He's impotent. He can't do it. You see, sometimes you ask a Christian, how are you getting on? And they say, oh, I'm a bit up and down. It's not so much up and down, I don't think. It's more husband to husband. It's like going back to your old husband. It's like, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm not doing very well. Jesus, please, I'm so sorry. I've not been walking with you as I should. I'll try harder, Lord. I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. And if I, if I really do this, well, that'll make you happy. It's like, it's like in life to say, hey, if you really keep your new husband happy, really develop your relationship with your old husband. That'll do the trick. I don't think so. See, Jesus said, I am the way. We don't need a way to the way. He is the way. It's over. It's finished. It's all over. We now have a new husband. And even in the book of Revelation, Jesus says to a lukewarm church at Laodicea, he says, you've grown lukewarm. I'm outside. I'm at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and keeps the law. No, no, no. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in with him. I'll sup with him. See, Jesus offers himself. He's the life-imparting husband. That old relationship's over. It's finished. It's complete. We reign in life through the abundance of grace. Not law. It doesn't work through law. Law brings me to Jesus. Jesus is the life imparter. Je See, Paul said this, we do not preach ourselves. Jesus never said that. He preached himself all the time. I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the true vine, I'm the resurrection, I'm the bread of life, I'm the water of life, I'm, I, come to me. We come to Jesus, we live with Jesus, we drink in Jesus. That's the way we bear fruit for the glory of God. So we are changed, not by relationship with the law, but under this grace setting. We're not under law under grace we're under a new relationship it says we reign in life through this abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness what does that mean it means that God gives us righteousness as a gift because what happens is this we we can feel this kind of guilt and we feel condemnation it's like I don't feel I'm very doing very well and the Bible calls it condemnation 
And, and we just feel, I see, as I said earlier, Satan gets behind all this and says, call yourself a Christian. I saw that. I did that. And you think, oh, I'm so sorry, Lord. I'm so sorry. I'm not doing so well. Let me suggest that this right arm represents our awareness of guilt. And so we think, look, and he says, how are you doing? I'm not doing very well. I'll pray harder. I'll read my Bible more. I'll do some more trying to hide guilt. I'll work on my sanctification and try to, I'm doing better, I'm doing better. And then Satan says, how are you doing? I'm doing better, really. Have you heard about Freddie? No, what about Freddie? He fasts twice a week. Oh, no, fast twice a week. I better do that as well. So read my Bible, pray, fast twice a week. I had a friend when I used to commute to London every day, when I first left work and so on. I was commuting to London, got on the train at Brighton, went to London every day. And a friend of mine, he was a companion of mine, a dear friend, a zealous young Christian, he said, hey, last week, he said, I got tracks. I went to every compartment right through the train. And I thought, oh no, there's something else I've got to do. (laughs) Everything that you heard, it was another thing you felt you had to do to keep God happy, to make sure I was all right. And everything you pick up, oh, I've got to do that as well now. You see that? You think, okay, I'll pray, I'll read my Bible, I'll fast twice a week. Then Satan comes again and says, how are you doing? I'm doing better. What are you doing? I'm fasting twice a week. I expect you're pleased. Yeah, I am pleased. I expect you're proud. Yes, I am. Oh, no, I'm proud. (laughs) And some people give up because they think, I can't keep it up. Christianity is too difficult to keep up. They've missed the point. They think they have to produce something out of themselves. And they think it's just wearisome. It's hard work. And it isn't. (laughs) Jesus said, my yoke is easy. Come learn of me. Learn of me. Come be yoked to me. You'll find rest for your soul. Hallelujah. You found rest for your soul? Or you found, can't keep this up. Rest for your soul. It's the gift of righteousness. The free gift of righteousness. Otherwise, you see, we feel, Lord, I'm... I'm really, I'm with you. You know, you can go home from this thing, Lord. It's you and me, we're together. Hallelujah, I'm back with you. And then, and then think, right, tomorrow morning, uh, let me just kind of pretend I'm one of the wives here. All right, I'm praying. Lord, bless my husband at the workplace today. Lord, let your face shine on him. Make him, Lord, he's such a good man. Let his testimony, Lord, give him opportunity to speak for you. And Lord, bless him. He's such a dear one, I It'd be nice to bless him. Maybe I could get him. I know what he'd like. He'd like a steak. I'd, I'll go and go. I'll go and buy him a steak. That'd be fun. I'll surprise him tonight. That'd be so. Yeah, I'll surprise him. I'll get him a nice steak. I'll find a bottle of wine. That'll bless him. I'm supposed to be praying. Um, praying. Yeah. Um, uh, praying. Yeah. Praying. Uh, oh yeah. It's the missionary supper Friday night. Missionary. Lord, bless the missionaries when they come to us on Friday. And Lord, help us to understand about Congo and what's happening there and what these missionaries are doing. And Lord, really bless the supper. Oh yeah, the supper. I said, I said I'd do the quiche and I haven't, I haven't got any of the uh, things, the ingredients. I need to go. I must get some eggs. I get to get some bacon. Oh I, could, oh, I could do that at the same time. I was going to get that for my husband. Oh, that would be fun. I could get the steak and I'd get some bacon. I'd get some eggs. Oh, we'll have a fun. Be... And then Satan comes. He says, oh mighty woman of intercession. 
Are you prevailing in the heavenlies? <laughs> oh, I'm prevailing in the heavenlies. I'm useless. I try and pray. My brain goes out the window. I can't concentrate. I'm a useless prayer. Oh, I better get to my Bible reading. Where was I? My Bible reading. Oh, yeah, I was 13 days behind, wasn't I? Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, what was it? It was Leviticus. Yeah, I got to Leviticus. Yeah, chapter 5, that's right, when it says, uh, oh no, chapter 4, that's right, it says, uh, he shall remove, the priest shall remove uh, from it all the fat of the bull or the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that's on the entrails, and the two kidneys, which the, the fat that's on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. See, then Satan says, getting a lot out of it, are we? <laughs> you see, you think, no, I'm a clue what it's all about. I'm a useless Christian. See, I'm a terrible Christian. That's what we come to. You think, well, last night, hey, I'm with Jesus. This morning, I'm a terrible Christian. What happened in the night? Nothing. You slept. But this morning, you're now assessing your relationship with God on how you're doing this stuff what we sometimes call the means of grace, which actually we turn into performance stuff. And it's got nothing to do with it. You say, well, don't you read the Bible, Terry? Yeah, I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading through now. I'm going through verse by verse. I love the Bible, but I don't read the Bible to impress God. See, I don't say to God, whole chapter this morning, good, eh, Lord? Points for that. You know, prayed for 20 minutes this morning. Hey, 20 minutes, Lord. Good, good, 20 minutes. See, I don't pray to impress God. I don't read my Bible to impress God. I've found someone who's already impressed him on my behalf. God is thoroughly impressed with Jesus and I'm in him. So, beloved, I read the Bible because I want to learn some more. I want to meet Jesus. I, want, I, I don't read it to gain merit. And Paul says his contemporaries were going around trying to establish a righteousness of their own based on law instead of accepting the righteousness which is a gift from God. Amen? Beloved, we're not under law. I'm not trying to impress God. That's all over. Jesus has dealt with my guilt. Now he's given me righteousness as a gift. Hallelujah. And the answer to condemnation is not trying to do better sanctification. God said this, you are justified freely by Christ as a gift. And that covers all, there is no condemnation. Do you know that for yourself? There is no, condemn, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not for those who are doing well, for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation friend of mine said, when I saw that in the Bible, I underlined it so much, it went right through to the maps. (laughs) There is no condemnation. There isn't any. There isn't any. And beloved, see, sometimes people say, when you pray, when you say your prayers in the morning, say, start with confession. Kind of clears the decks. Jesus didn't say that. I don't do that. See, I don't start with confession. It sounds reasonable. I can clear the decks. But you see, you do that. You say, Lord, I'm so sorry for this. Um, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. And then Satan creeps up and says, and that. What about, oh, yeah, that too. Yeah, sorry about that. And it's like he gives you a shovel and you dig a big hole. And you jump in. You go, oh, I'm sorry. I'm such a wretched. And prayer just becomes misery. You pray, oh, I'm such a terrible Christian. I don't do that. I never do that. 
I come to God and say, thank you, Father. When Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father. Father, hallelujah, I'm your son. I'm righteous in your sight. I'm accepted through the beloved. Thank you, Father. Thank you for what you did in Jesus. I start singing. I start praising. I start thanking. I don't stop. I say, I'm such a terrible... That's hopeless. It's missing the grace of God. We start on this grace ground. You've made me righteous as a gift. Even in the Old Testament, they were told, bring a lamb to the priest. You had to go and buy your lamb, bring the lamb to the priest. But it had to be a perfect lamb. So when they brought their lamb to the priest, they're not thinking, I do hope the priest doesn't notice this is all torn and this has got mud on it. It's irrelevant. All eyes are on the lamb. And the priest would take the lamb and say, are there any broken limbs? Is it blind? Is it diseased? You're looking at the lamb. All eyes are on the lamb. And then the priest would say this, I find no fault in it. Hallelujah. Nothing wrong with my lamb. If there's nothing wrong with my lamb, I'm okay. Even Pilate said, I find no fault in him. There's nothing wrong with our lamb. He's taken away all our guilt. All our guilt. I remember once I was praying. Honestly, this happened to me. I was praying. And as I'm praying, this happened years ago. I'm praying. And I felt God reminded me of that story when Jacob prayed to his old blind father, whose name was Isaac. And Isaac had a son that he really loved. His name was Esau. He loved Esau. He was his, you know, he was his beautiful son, Esau. So Jacob, who was a crook, one day, in Esau's absence, took Esau's clothes... He put skins on his hands and around his neck so that he seemed to be like the son that the father loved. And he came to his blind father hoping the father wouldn't recognize who it was. Terrified that when he drew near, the father would say, hey, what are you doing in there? Get up. No, he drew near and happily the, the father, the blind father, he caught the fragrance and he felt and he said, oh, my son whom I love then began blessing, blessing. And I'm praying, and I felt God reminded me of this. And he said to me, do not fear as you draw near to me that I'll find you hidden in the son that I love because I placed you in the son that I love. And you're accepted in the son that I love. And I often pray that now, even now. This happened years ago. But I, keep, I say, Lord, when I come to you, Lord, like feel his clothing. Catch the fragrance of his obedience, the beauty of his life, his obedience even to death on a cross, his kindness, his mercy, his wonderful, that whole life that he lived, that perfect spotless life. Just get a hold of it, Lord. I'm hidden in all that. I'm accepted in the beloved. As it says in Ephesians chapter 1, I'm accepted in the son that he loves. Hallelujah. Not only am I accepted there, I'm blessed there with all spiritual blessings. Like Jacob got all the blessing from his father because he was hidden in the son that the father loved. Hallelujah. Amen? We're blessed, beloved, because we're in the son that the father loves. And all his beauty is attributed to us. Hallelujah. John Bunyan said this. John Bunyan, the old Puritan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he said one day he was walking... He didn't feel very bright. He felt a bit depressed. 
And he saw a vision of Christ as his righteousness. And he suddenly realized, he said, it didn't depend on my frame. We sing that in the old hymn, don't we? We sang it, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. You think, what is that all about? Well, in those days, frame, it's like we say frame of mind. Then it was like how I feel, it's my frame. It's, it, it doesn't depend on how I feel. That's what it meant. He said, I suddenly realized, it didn't matter what I felt. But he said, I, if I felt low, I couldn't take away from his righteousness. And if I felt good, I couldn't add to his righteousness. Because Jesus Christ and his righteousness is mine every day. Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When I wake up tomorrow morning, beloved, Jesus Christ is my righteousness. When I wake up the next day, he's my righteousness. Even if I slept through my quiet time, he's still my righteousness. He's still my righteousness. Nothing to do with my performance. He's my righteousness. We celebrate it. We walk out into freedom. We know an abandonment to guilt and shame and trying to keep it up. He's my unchanging righteousness. He will be to the end. Hallelujah. It says in Hebrews, let me read you a very famous verse which you know very well. It says about the Old Testament priests, they could never sit down because they had to make another offering, another offering, another offering. It says of Jesus, he sat down, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those being sanctified. He's perfected us for all time. You're righteous. You're in Christ. It's a done deal. It's finished. You're walking in grace. You're not under law. You've been given a righteousness, not your own. That is how God always sees you. You're completely accepted in the Son that he loves. We reign in life, beloved, because of this abundance of grace and this free gift of righteousness. Not by our trying to keep certain rules and laws. That's not the deal. That's not the deal. This is the grounds of our acceptance. This is how we reign in life. We take the gospel seriously. We enjoy the gospel. It sets us free every day. Every day we enjoy God's free love for us. Amen? Amen. Beloved, he's yours. You're his forever and forever. Let's celebrate it. Let's celebrate the truth. Of course, there's lots of other things, but nothing will take away from this foundational truth. I would encourage you again, please get hold of the book. Work through it about keeping yourself in the love of God. All sorts of other things that are in there to make sure we enjoy and it's not what some people call cheap grace. It's grace that helps us live a completely different kind of life. It keeps us going. We may get older. Our older man, outer man may be fading away. Our inner man's being renewed every day. Because Christ is our life. And he's always there for us. Let's stand to pray. And if the band could come up, please, we must close pretty quickly. Just pray, Father, how wonderful you are. Jesus, how great that all the handwriting that was against us is nailed to your cross. We bear it no more. We thank you so much for this breathtaking deliverance from guilt, this extraordinary gift that's ours every day. We can hold our heads up every day and walk in the good of the grace of God. Lord, bless this word to us, I pray. Let it be life-changing. 
Let us live in the, the joy of it. Let us know the joy of our salvation. We know it's our strength. The joy of the Lord's our strength. Lord, keep us celebrating what you've done for us and let this word stay with us, work in us, be glorified through our response to your truth, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.